This is Michael Cox for the Uncommon Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dan Holland. Dan is a senior scientist at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center within the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA. Dan joined the Northwest Fisheries Science Center in 2010. Prior to this, he held positions with the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, the New Zealand Seafood Industry Council, the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, and the Alaska Fisheries Science Center. He is also an affiliate professor at the University of Washington and chair of the Science and Statistical Committee of the Pacific Fishery Management Council. Finally, Dan is an associate editor of Marine Resource Economics and is a former president of the International Institute for Fisheries Economics and Trade. During our conversation, we talked about several aspects of Dan's research, which is focused primarily on the design and evaluation of fishery management tools and strategies. In particular, we discussed Dan's research related to catch share policy, which involves placing a cap on the total allowable catch for a species and a tradable quota that is allocated to a group of fishers in proportion to this cap. These policies have been both popular and controversial, and Dan's research can help us think about the mechanics of some of the most critical issues involved, including how to balance the costs and benefits of individual versus collective fishing rights, options for limiting bycatch and dealing with choke species via quota pooling, and how these all relate to the idea of ecosystem management. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dan Holland. So Dan, why don't we take a step back and, and start kind of from wherever you want to define the beginning as. Um, okay. I saw, you know, on your website that you got a PhD in environmental and natural resource economics from the University of Rhode Island. And I have a general impression that, I mean, there is a major, um, is there a major fisheries or research center at the University of Rhode Island? Remember that? Uh, yeah. So, you know, back when I went there, um, University of Rhode Island had a strong emphasis in marine resource economics. So uh, at okay. the, in the environmental resource economics program was almost everybody, almost all the faculty there were focused on marine resource economics at the time. Okay. No longer the case. Oh, it isn't. Okay. No. So what led you down that path initially, Dan, when you make sense of your origins and what interested you in this space? What were the, what was the one step in front of the other that led you down that path? Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, the sort of the consequential fork in the road really occurred for me um, when I was working on my master's uh, degree at University of Illinois. So I went to University of Illinois. Um, mainly, I, I was interested in development economics at the time. I, I um, spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps. I expected to go kind of hope to go back and work in development work after I finished a master's. Um, and I was working on a master's there. Uh, and I um, sort of was walking down the hall and I saw a, uh, a, a article, New York Times op-ed, I believe, piece that was put up on the wall outside of one of the professor's uh, doors. And it was um, this op-ed written by a guy named Jim Bonsack, who was a, a um, fishery scientist, uh, marine ecologist uh, at the Southwest Fishery Science Center in, in uh, Miami, I believe at the time. And he was writing about marine reserves as a way to manage fisheries. Um, and so I became interested in that and, and um, ended up doing a paper on that uh, for a natural resource economics class I was taking and then decided that that would be a good topic for my master's thesis. So 
I ended up doing a master's thesis on, on marine reserves as a fishery management tool. Um, and um, that then, you know, eventually led me to a PhD. I, I took a year off working at a consulting firm after my master's degree and decided I, uh, after a year of doing that, that I wanted to go back and do the, the PhD. Um, and Rhode Island was really a, a better place to go because I knew I wanted to do fisheries. Illinois was not a particularly great place to, <laughs> to do fisheries economics. Uh, and at the time, as I mentioned, uh, the University of Rhode Island had this strong emphasis in marine resource economics uh, in, in the environmental resource econ program there. Um, and uh, so I went there kind of intending to do, to focus on fishery management and fishery resource uh, uh, marine resource economics in general, I guess, um, but also kind of intending to continue work on marine reserves, which uh, I did indeed do um, for my dissertation. Can you talk to me a bit more about what your dissertation focused on? Did you look at a specific reserve or was it kind of a larger end comparison? Um, yeah, so it did, it focused, the kind of the empirical focus was on the New England um, multi-species groundfish fishery. Um, and uh, at the time, um, that fishery was managed with sort of, a, you know, a range of input controls and um, and large area closures. So um, there were large area closures and that were, um, you know, a pretty substantial part of the management approach. Um, and so I, I was I did some modeling of that uh, bioeconomic model, um, but I also a lot of my focus was on modeling spatial behavior and how how uh, fishermen would respond to area closures, uh, and then, you know, how does that play out, you know, in, in kind of equilibrium or, or, well, not really equilibrium, I was doing simulation modeling, but, um, you know, understanding those, um, those interactions between human behavior and, you know, and spatial controls on the fishery. Okay. But with that, that focus on the, the New England groundfish fishery. Okay. And for listeners who when they think of a ground fish, they maybe think of a fish that essentially just like stays on the ground. Is there more we can say about what that, what, that's a, that's a class of many different species of fish, correct? Yes, it is. So, uh, so that would include in, in, in this particular fishery, cod, haddock, um, and, uh, various flatfish, uh, flounders and, um, and, uh, and then, you know, some other, some other fishery fish species like hake and pollock and a whole variety of species. Uh, and many of those are caught together. Uh, and this is mainly a trawl fishery. Um, but there was also other gears, gillnets, uh, and long lines used in this fishery as well. So it's a multi-gear, multi-species fishery. Okay. And I mean, while we're on the subject, Dan, can you talk a bit about the the role of the kind of modeling you do in the science and practice of of fisheries management and governance because i think for folks who don't do modeling they stand as these kind of uh in, intimidating black box objects that we don't really know how to engage with and we don't so for someone like me who does like observational work i know that the the results of these things matter but can for someone like me can you talk to me about how you view the role of these and how it relates to other types of science and practice sure um you know i think the kind of modeling i do is sort of a middle ground between um sort of theoretical modeling purely theoretical modeling um that you know many economists had had you know were 
had been doing we're doing with, with fisheries where you've got you know very stylized models with um that you know are looking at general policies and supposed to provide you sort of general results that may be um uh, useful across a range of fisheries um and so it's middle ground between that and a and a you know a, a totally uh you know empirical stock assessment type modeling approach um where you know where you actually creating a, a model that's that is um you know incorporates the stock assessment the way the fishery scientists are doing and it's used for tactical um you know tactical uh management purposes setting tacs setting total level catch or um, other controls so what i'm doing is more you know tends to be more in a middle ground there where um you have a model um that is um that is empirically based um it incorporates a biological model of the fishery that um, uh, to, you know, a large degree mimics, you know, the way that the fishery is modeled for stock assessments um, as much as possible, um, but then also incorporates uh, a uh, behavioral model of the, of the, uh, the, the fishing fleet or fishing fleets. Um, and the model is then used to evaluate uh, the or to kind of compare outcomes really um, with when you impose different types of management approaches. So for example, um, if you had a fishery where um, you impose an area closure uh, as part of a management uh, management system, you know, how does that, uh, how is that likely to, to impose, uh, to, to affect the outcomes in the fishery um, on a variety, variety of different types of outcomes. So we may be interested in, in biological outcomes, average catch, uh, sustainability, risk of, of overfishing or uh, um, depletion, um, profit, profitability, et cetera. Okay. And so what were the, what was the question you were trying to answer about the New England fishery and what was the answer you came to? Um, the question, I guess, the basic question was, you know, are these marine, do, do these marine reserves help us um, achieve objectives, management objectives, both uh, sort of biological and, and social? Um, so, you know, first of all, I mean, um, biological, you know, that the, the issue in New England groundfish fishery at the time and, and, and for some time after that um, was that there was, you know, continual overfishing occurring. Um, and, um, you know, they were using a variety of methods to try and to control that overfishing um, to, uh, you know, and, and those included some uh, controls on inputs um, and, you know, what gear you could use, how, how much you could fish, how many boats were licensed to fish, um, but also um, large area closures uh, and sometimes seasonal area closures. And so we're looking at you know, how effective these seasonal area closures were at, at achieving biological and economic objectives. And, and what we found, you know, what the model suggests was that they can be effective, um, even seasonal ones, because they basically were tending to, you know, closing areas where fish were accumulating, um, either as a result of uh, sort of diffusion process where, you know, fish are, are not being caught there and, and um, fish are migrating in more than migrating out, so fish are accumulating, but also in a case where where the fish are um, sort of migrating back and forth seasonally, which was, you know, thought to be the case there. So even then, they can be effective, even though the fish are not protected year round, if they're 
sort of protected when they're aggregated. Um, so, but the, the upshot of that is that really what you're doing, the reason, the way that you're achieving your biological uh, objective there, reducing fishing mortality is that you're reducing efficiency. Um, you're reducing catch rates. Um, so sort of from an economic standpoint, um, it's not clear that that's a particularly useful way to go. Um, and, you know, it would be maybe preferable to find some other way to limit um, limit the fishing mortality of the catch in a way that didn't inhibit efficiency. Okay. Well, that's a very good segue to, you know, the main block of our, our conversation potentially. So um, your work on catch shares and these, you know, go by many different names, it seems like catch shares, individual transferable quotas, individual fishing quotas. Sometimes we're not talking about individual at all, as you know, as you talk about in some of your work, these are effectively quotas distributed at the collective level. Yeah. And so the, 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 my understanding is that these really started, these have a history going back in terms of implementation, at least several decades, seventies and eighties, there was a moratorium placed on them in the nineties and they kind of made a comeback. And now there's at least 14 different catch share programs in the United States. There's other very well-known ones, say in New Zealand, there's one that gets talked about a lot. In the Northern Atlantic areas, there's, there's several, uh, Iceland has one, uh, Denmark has one. And the narrative that you hear about the problem that these are designed to solve relates to this idea of efficiency. And part of that narrative is that what preceded these catch share programs in a lot of places were these uh, temporal rules that basically limited this, didn't limit the, um, didn't assign kind of rights to individual fishers or groups of fishers per se. What it says is you can catch as much as you can up to a limit for a certain period of time. And then that creates this race to fish um, which, you know, has been like well-documented in the most dangerous catch that show that whose basic point seemed to be like, let's look how dramatic and dangerous this is, which is like, of course, what reality TV looks for. Um, and so the counterfactual that, that catchers are often implicitly applied to is, is that race to fish scenario. Although it is interesting, as you say, that in, in some places there were other pre-existing controls besides that, which include input controls or um, preserve areas, seasonal closures, et cetera. And that's one of the things I'm still trying to sort out in my own head is when we're thinking about the effects of a particular policy, is it even feasible in many cases to tease out the effects of a catchier versus other policies that are implemented along with it? So that's kind of a place I'd like to get to. Because ultimately, we would like to isolate the effects of a particular policy from a kind of policy instrument choice perspective, right? If we're trying to think about what policy is, I don't want to say best, because I actually think that's already kind of an unhelpful way to think, but like what policy would be helpful in a certain place? Um, and that's, you know, in social science, we think about that as kind of the great challenge of causal inference, because we can't do experiments where we implement catch shares, randomly assign catch shares to some places and not others. So we're never going to get perfect causal inference there. So this is all to lead to the question, which is, in your mind, what is the motivation for cat shares? Um, I suppose, what are the theoretical arguments that you hear that make sense to you in practice? What do you see the challenges that they're addressing? 
the main narratives that I hear are kind of, there's two of them. And I'm still uncertain about their relationship with each other. One is about the tragedy of the commons, right? So there's this idea of uh, we don't have sufficient controls in terms of property arrangements. So open access means no one really knows who owns what. And so that leads to degradation of the of the environment. And then you hear about efficiency, which is something you already mentioned. And we hear that uh, catch shares can improve efficiency of catch. And when you when you look at some of the empirical work on catch shares, that seems to often be their strongest measurable outcome based on the lead readings I've been doing for a little while. And I'm, I'm a non-expert in this area. That seems to be one of the strongest empirical claims that is also made about them, that they are able to improve the profitability or and efficiency of, of the fishery. Um, but as you said, Dan, and this is another, another piece of the puzzle here is a struggle that I have in my own head is do is if is improving efficiency always a good thing if what it means is we're more efficiently taking fish out of the ocean at the expense of say increasing bycatch and being less holistic in how we're managing the larger ecosystem. And so that's another direction and I'd like to take this this interview. So I should stop talking and, and actually ask you this question, which is, in your mind, what is motivating these catch shares? Like, what is the problem you think that they're trying to solve? Uh, okay, well, let me start with the theoretical, because you you sort of pose the question first from a theoretical standpoint. And I think from a theoretical standpoint, um, catch shares are mainly about efficiency. Um, they're, you know, they're mainly um, meant to to create incentives for an ability for individuals or groups to um, kind of prosecute fisheries in an efficient way that, to maximize the benefits that they get out of those fisheries generally. Uh, benefits being profits um, is being one measure at least of them. And um, so that's kind of the, the main, you know, the main focus there, this, the stewardship, uh, you know, the case for sort of stewardship benefits from at least from a, uh, you know, pure ITQ kind of standpoint, as we talked about there, you know, all flavors of catch shares. Um, but if you just think about a, a sort of a plain unfettered ITQ system with large, you know, large number of different individuals being allocated quota, the stewardship incentives created there are not particularly strong at the individual level, right? Um, nobody really has incentive to, to, to do something that is gonna conserve the fish in the future. But the group as a whole, does have that incentive. So you have a group of quota holders as a whole that um, have a strong incentive uh, to to be good stewards and and ensure that, that that fishery is sustainable because they've got a lot of capital tied up in that value of that quota if they if particularly if they can resell it at some point in the future or use it for a long time. They know they're going to be able to use it um, for a long period of time. And so as a result, then you do end up getting these stewardship benefits or you get you tend to see better better um, biological uh, ecological outcomes um, in part because the this group of individuals tends to be supportive of relatively conservative management to ensure the sustainability of the fishery okay and so and and I, in some ways I jumped the gun here too so we should tease out like which because there's different pieces of a capture program right and the two, that are always most salient to me. One is the total allowable catch or TAC, which sets on a species by species basis, as I understand it, uh, 
um, a maximum amount. So it's kind of like it's an output rule that says we can't take more than we can't collectively take more than this amount of right. fish for this species. And that's going to vary by species by species, which creates some complications, as you've written about in some of your work, when you, you know, when you haven't caught us, you haven't fulfilled your quota for one species, but suddenly we're like impacting, um, we're coming up on, on, on the limits of how much we're supposed to catch for another species. How do we manage that? Um, and well, there's really three pieces, I guess there's, there's the total all the catch. Then there is the actual, the share of the catch. And so those, that's why we, you know, I think loose and it, sometimes it feels like it's rather loosely referred to as a rights-based management. I only say loosely because I think there's lots of different ways rights can be implemented. And this is one particular way, but sometimes it acts as it, it seems like it's talked about as if it's the way, but that is you, you are granting property rights to individual fishers. And a big part of that is that those rights are made in the context of the TAC. Right. And so, and an interesting part of this also, Dan, is that my understanding is that in most catch share systems, there's a proportionality where my, and it, it almost feels, it seems like it has to work with this way. So if I'm a fisher in a, in a catch share program, my, my quota is a proportion of the total allowable catch. Ultimately that has to translate into an ap an absolute number. Um, each year I'm like granted X number, but that number right. is based on how many rights I have and, and their relationship to the overall catch. So if the total catch goes down, that absolute number of fish I get to catch must go down too. Yeah, that is, that's the way that they're almost always done. Although New Zealand did um, initially um, provide you know, their, their ITQs were initially in absolute amounts um, and they later changed that to proportional because they ran into issues when they wanted to try and reduce the total amount of uh, catch on some fisheries uh, and then had to buy back a bunch of quota. Right. I mean, the, the, the advantage of doing it proportionally seems fairly straightforward. A, a counterexample that I use in um, a counterexample that often occurs to me is the interstate stream compact for the Colorado River, where they proportioned absolute amounts of water to the seven different states involved in it. And it turned out that they did that in a historically wet year. And so that right. they, the compact can't meet those absolute amounts. And so the nice thing about proportions is that they allow for flexibility and adaptability, right? If, if the overall amount goes down and I get a proportion of that, my proportion, my, my, my rights are automatically adjusted in a way that's ecologically appropriate. Right. Right. So that all seems good. Kind of a side thing about that that it, it does tend to strengthen the 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 incentive the stewardship incentives um, for the group as a whole right because you um, you know your future catch the amount you you will get in in future is dependent on the sustainability of the fishery right right that makes sense to me um, the third piece which my understanding is that this is the most controversial piece is what I, you know, in the comments field, we, we often call this alienability, which is basically tradeability, right? It's, it's the fact that you're, there are, are well-articulated markets in these um, quotas so that I can sell rights. Um, I can also lease them. And that seems to be a really important part of the picture here. We, again, Dan, sometimes I feel like it's so easy to say these abstract levels. And every time you Use it. We introduce a new term. We actually have to unpack that. There's, you know, tradeability can mean multiple things, and so it's easy to kind of think, oh, tradeability is bad or good. 
but ultimately it can be both um, depending on who you are and what your goals are. So tradability means um, that the actual amounts can be traded. Um, I think when people think about tradability in this context, they mostly think about individuals trading with each other. But as we know, that's not always the case. And in fact, one of the concerns of this tradability that's been most talked about by folks who aren't economists is the consolidation of fishing rights and the, you know, you kind of hear about this, Dan, right? Like the, the privatization of the seas and the concerns about international conglomerates owning parts of marine resources in the United States because they've been able to buy up the rights because that's basically been facilitated by the stratability. Those are the concerns that you hear. It seems to me like 90% of the concerns you hear about cat shares are in that direction. And so I'd like to get your take on that as well, because you've also looked at how how these markets, um, what these markets also need to do to work well for the system. Because again, I think it's easy to get kind of dogmatic and say like, oh, these markets are the cause of all our problems or all markets, all we need to do is implement a market and everything will be fine. And again, one thing I appreciate about your work is it feels like a kind of middle ground where you're saying, well, markets need to do certain things to work well. How do we, how do we try to facilitate those kind of facilitating conditions? So there's, there's an argument I've also heard, Dan, that this tradability, so that creates an exchange value, right? So the, the right now has, um, you, you referring when you talked earlier about like a use value, right? So, and you mentioned that that can lead to a stewardship incentive because if uh, collectively, if we use too much, then I guess the TAC goes down. I guess technically the TAC, ideally, right? If we don't go over the TAC, then then everything should be fine. But I guess everything's not always fine. And so the TAC could go down and we'll need to fish less in the future anyway. Yeah, well, nature, nature will do what nature will do. Yeah. Yes, yes, nature. Na yeah, one of the things I like from a, a colleague of mine in, in South Africa, they say is that uh, animals don't read the books we write about them. Um, so that part makes sense to me. I've, I have heard some arguments that the tradability itself can create an incentive to conserve. And it's harder for me to follow how, well, I mean, fair enough. If I, if, if the exchange value of my right could diminish, if the TAC goes down, then if I want to maintain my exchange value, then maybe that provides me an incentive to conserve. I can kind of follow that. I don't see necessarily how that provides a, uh, an incentive to conserve over and above what was already the case based on what you mentioned, based on the use value. Okay, well, um, it, let, let's take an example. Let's say that you allocated the, the um, quota only on, um, on, a, on a yearly basis, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I have now a, a, an ITQ or a cat share that's, that's only good for next year. Am I going to be supportive, uh, you know, of anything less than the highest possible catch, you know, that I can get? Um, so, you know, I am not going to be supportive of a more conservative policy to the extent that I have any influence over that, right? Um, mm -hmm. In say the Fishery Management Council process, whatever, whoever's sitting in the TAC. But if I um, if I have um, a longer term uh, a longer term right or privilege or whatever that's going to give me a share of that 
that total allowable catch, you know, for several years or indefinitely, um, then um, I'm going to be, you know, more willing to potentially take a lower catch now to ensure that I get a higher catch in the future. Um, and, you know, that, that, you know, maybe independent of whether I can sell it or not, um, you know, as long as I have a fairly long, you know, as long as I'm not 80 years old and, um, you know, and, and, and don't really care too much maybe, but um, if I've got a long, long period ahead of me that I'm intending to use that. Um, but, um, you know, if I can resell it uh, at some point, then even if I am 70 years old, then that sort of long-term value of that use right is capitalized in the value of the quota, right? If it's mm -hmm. an indefinite right, just like land, um, then it's the future use, the future stream of benefits that are going to come out of that of that property um, that determine its value. And so, you know, I'm more willing to do. I don't want to do something that's going to reduce the value of that asset because, frankly, the asset may be worth quite a bit. You know, many several times what the annual use value is. Yeah, I mean, Dan, I think this is something that I'm not appreciating enough yet, this a distinction between the, well, I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I actually think a lot of the theory about property rights in general relies on what you just talked about. The idea that why does ownership in, uh, incentivize stewardship? It's it's It does so to the extent that it, it helps lower discount rates and helps people think more longer term about how their impacts on the environment will feed back to their welfare in the future. So I think that's a, that's a very central theory for like property rights generally. Um, but that's not always the case, apparently, is something I'm hearing from you, that someone might only have uh, some a quota for a year. Would that be in like a leasing situation if I've leased it from someone else and so I only have those rights for a year? Or is it more than that? Well, no, I'm just kind of putting that out there as an example in terms of, of you know, how, how you as, a, as an individual, how you, what your incentives would be in terms of supporting. You're probably not going to, it's, it's less about what you're going to do, um, on, you know, out on, the, out on the fishing grounds. It's more about whether you're going to be supportive of more conservative management or not, sort of in the, in, in the, the fishery management council process, let's say. Oh, okay. Um, you know, so... Um, to a large degree in the U.S. now, that's sort of that that that's sort of taken out of the hands anyway of of, um, of the fishers you know, of the industry, right? We we scientists, you know, it's now in the Magnuson Act that that the the total allowable catch, there the maximum total allowable catch, is basically determined by scientists. It's you know based on what we, the the level that would result in overfishing and then reduced for uncertainty so that the science statistical committees um, I, which I, I chair the one for the Pacific Council um, we basically set that ABC um, and the the council then can choose to set, set a TAC below that um, but they can't set one higher okay and what was that acronym that that you said ABC uh, acceptable biological catch I think okay. Does that relate at all to these ideas uh, I've heard about, like of maximum sustainable yield or maximum economic yield, et cetera? Or is that a, are these different things? Uh, it's got very little to do with maximum economic yield. It's it relates mainly to um, maximum sustainable yield. So basically, it's it's not mix maximum sustainable yield, but basically you're um, you, you know you're taking a, a stock assessment model. You're determining um, a you know a a 
fishing mortality rate that would lead to um, maximum sustainable yield um, and setting that as, as a limit and then you're reducing and, and then you know what catch would it be associated with that fishing mortality and then you're saying um, uh, we're going to reduce that for uncertainty and that's where you get the ABC. So you have the, o the OFL is the overfishing limit um, which is associated with maximum sustainable yield um, loosely uh, and then the ABC is reduced from that. Okay. So, Dan, I know some of your work is focused on the, the quota markets. Could you talk to me about what these markets need to work well? What are the barriers they face in working well and how well you've seen them in your own work able to kind of surpass, like meet the challenges they have to, to, to make a catch your system work well? Um, sure, yeah. Um, well, you know, markets, uh, you know, tend to work well when you have, uh, you know, a large number of buyers and sellers and a very homogeneous thing that you're trading um, that has similar values to everybody um, and transparent values. And um, so if you have a single species fishery and there are no constraints on um, how, you know, how quota is used, where quota is used to catch fish uh, and sort of no aggregation limits on how much quota you know an individual can have um then um the you know that the, the markets are likely to to work pretty well um so you know uh there there are essentially no examples uh of that actually in place there that i'm aware of um you know all of these markets are constrained to some degree um usually spatially um uh and but often with other other limitations, um, aggregation limits and such. So um, there, you know, the, the markets are never sort of perfect or unfettered. Um, you know, as when you when you start layering on constraints, whether they be spatial, whether they be aggregation limits, whether it be the type of operation, like for example, in the halibut fishery in Alaska, you know, you have certain rights that are. Um, that can be traded amongst anyone, uh, other rights that can only, or the quota that can only be used by owner operators. Um, and so that quota is sort of less valuable than the quota that's, that can be used by anyone, including a, you know, a bigger vertically integrated company or something. Um, and uh, so those tend to kind of inhibit the efficiency of the market. Um, and um, and make it harder. They create transaction costs as well. You know, you've got to find find the matchup for you that works. Um, and um, and then you things get you know even more complicated when you have multi-species fisheries. And that's where you know some of my work was focused. But um, when you have multi-species fisheries, the the value of of quota of one species may be tied together with the value of other species. And How so? so that value. Uh, okay, so that I think you know the the, the most illustrative case is where you have um, you know what sometimes referred to as a choke species. So let's say you have a target species, um, and um, you know let's say you know uh, you know maybe it's sablefish here um, uh, on the west coast or uh, something, but um, you have you have a target species, um, and then you have another species that is tends to be caught along with it. Um, 
you know, maybe you can adjust those catch rates a little bit, but it's hard to avoid that species without, you know, it being very costly. And um, that species is really constraining. So that's what we, the situation we had on the West Coast when they introduced the ITQ system, you had a bunch of rockfish species that had been overfished and they had, they were rebuilding and they had very low quotas. Um, the, the, the best best example is the yellow eye rockfish, which, you know, I think there was a, uh, you know, less than a ton of quota or something for the whole fishery on the West Coast, right? Um, and nobody, you know, hardly anyone ever catch, catches it, but everyone only got a, you know, a couple pounds of quota. And so if you did catch some, you might catch, you know, 20 pounds. Most fishers would never ever catch it, but um, if they caught it, then they they would be forced to tie up basically until they until they could come up with a quota to cover that catch. Um, and so the value of the sablefish quota or the Dover sole quota then is tied in with this with this other other species. And 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 in fact, you know, interestingly, sablefish has now sort of become the the, the constraint on use of other species like Dover sole. There's plenty of Dover sole, but you basically need more sablefish quota in order to catch the dover cell. Okay. And Dan, this, this in my mind relates to the issue of bycatch as well, but I'm realizing I need to kind of clarify that understanding, right? So most intuitively bycatch is when you catch something you didn't want to catch, right? That's like, right. The, that's the basic idea. And so in that general definition, if I'm trying to catch something for which I have a lot of quota, I catch something for which I have little to no quota. Would you label that situation as bycatch? Um, I mean, it's sort of, it, I mean, technically it sort of depends on whether or not you are able to land and market that catch. So, so, um, for example, going back to this fishery on the West coast, um, they catch halibut, uh, in this trawl fishery, this trawl ITQ fishery. Um, but they're not allowed to sell, um, that to land and sell that halibut. However, they do have to account for it and they actually do get quota individual and tradable quota for halibut to cover that bycatch. Okay. And I mean, so in bycatch is one of the main, well, I don't want to maybe jump onto that too, because I want to stick with the, the market discussion as well. A, a question I had based on something you said about markets two minutes ago before we get into bycatch is this idea of a spatial constraint on markets. You said that all these markets, of course, they're imperfect because no market is perfect. Can you unpack this idea of a spatial constraint on a market and how it, and how that's a challenging limitation? Um, yeah, I give you a couple examples. Um, so you know, again, with the West Coast here, for example, you have um, many of the stocks. Sablefish, for example, has a northern and a southern component uh, in terms of quota. So your quota, if you have quota for the south, you can only use it in the south. You have quota for the north, you can only use it in the north. Um, turns out that the quota in the south isn't worth very much because it's not very they're feasible to catch the fish down there. They're not actually utilizing the full quota, whereas the quota in the north is quite valuable. So, you know, if you were able to trade it up in north and south, um, you know, and you, or if it was just one quota share for north and south combined, um, that, you know, that, that would, you'd see the quota flowing up into the north being used in the north where it's, where it's more valuable. Um, the, the reason for it, for that, that constraint is, um, you know, it's not really a fully full biological basis. They're not considered separate biological stocks. Um, and um, so they're sort of, it's really kind of more um, socio-political kind of reasons for that. Okay. Really than, than 
logical. Um, so another example is is with halibut in Alaska. They have a lot of different areas. Um, I think those areas, if my understanding is, those areas are related to assessments and to to biological uh, controls. But I think they also have a sort of a social political basis as well. Um, and there and there are constraints on spatial trading of quota um, that are meant to achieve um, both biological and social and economic. Uh, Okay. Outcome. I mean, it reminds me of the discourse about cap and trade, which can lead to um, essentially also as a spatial issue where you could end up concentrating pollutants in one particular place based on kind of how it plays out about for whom it's most efficient to abate pollution and for whom it's easier just to pay to keep on polluting. You can end up having kind of hot spots. I don't know how much that actually connects, but it's something I often think about is, you know, because in a way, catchers are like cap and trade for the sea. Right. Um, yeah. The, the flip side of that, though, is that, you know, when there's uncertainty about where the fisher are. So if you if you believe that that there's a biological reason, let's say, to have um, separate areas. Right. Um, and you um, and so you have separate quota for those different areas. And you don't let it flow across those lines. Um, that may make sense, but if you get it wrong as the fishery, as, as the, the manager, um, and you set the quota too high in one area um, because you think there are more fish there, there it's more productive than it actually is, um, you may actually then end up having more fishing in that than you would have if you had allowed the quota to flow to the area that was actually more productive and had more fish. Okay. And so that, in that case, that would lead to environmental degradation because there's effectively too much fishing in that one area. Is that right? right? Okay. Right. Okay. So, um, so you mentioned that in the Alaskan halibut fishery, there's um, different classes of rights based on who you're allowed to sell them to. Did I hear that right? Yeah. And that, because that seems like I've heard about um, policies designed to confront the the issues with tradability that I mentioned to you. One of them, the one I'm most familiar with is, uh, there's a keyword for it that I'm not remembering, but it's basically a ceiling on what how much quota you're allowed to have, like 10% of all the quota, et cetera. Right, aggregation limits. Is kind of aggregation limits. Because again, one of the discourses you hear is that fish local fishers are kind of be, having their rights alienated from them and then aren't able to get those back. And so you have like disruption of traditional fishing communities. It does seem like the creation of different classes of quota that are only tradable among, in this case, say, if you had a class of quota that was really reserved for like local communities, and maybe that's actually what the Alaskan halibut fishery was trying to do. That seems like an effective way to deal with what is kind of an unavoidable issue with tradability. Do you view that in the aggregation limits as potentially effective responses to the main issue um, introduced by tradability? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we there are a variety of different constraints that are often put on on quota shares or you know catch shares more generally um, that are meant to achieve um, other goals other than you know economic profit, you know, social goals as well as ecological ones, right? And and I think this is this is the case in general with property rights, right? If you have land. Land, you, you know, you're not allowed to just do whatever you want with any land, you know, the zoning rules and mm -hmm. environmental rules and stuff restrict what you can, you can do with that. And while those might reduce the profit that you can generate from that land, at least in the short run, um, the idea is that they're, 
the benefits to society as a whole are higher by having those restrictions in place. And so the same is right. true with these restrictions that you're putting in place um, on, a, on, on fisheries. Um, you have other objectives that you want, social and ecological objectives. And so, yes, you may want to restrict how much um, somebody uh, can have because you want to sort of preserve this um, uh, owner operator or kind of small company type nature of the, of the industry. Um, often there's actual, you know, owner operator requirements. So this is a case with the sable fish, um, fixed gear fishery on, on the West Coast, and also with most of the, the halibut fishery up there in Alaska. Um, some people were grandfathered in um, the rights to to use, you know, on bigger platforms, vertically integrated, or you know, where where you had a, a captain that was a higher captain as opposed to you know the owner. Um, and that those are those rights those kind of less restricted ones but for the most part the rights were given out to owner operators um and, and in fact once those are sort of over time those are meant to become more more and more of the quotas that are supposed to be owner operators so those are meant to kind of keep this traditional society traditional um structure industrial structure um there are rules about um spatial aggregation that are also that are in you know designed to protect particular fishing communities. Um, uh, and you know, so the crab fishery up in Alaska, for example, um, you know, they, they have kind of some, that, that two pie system where you have processors have rights that have to be matched up with catch, catch uh, the harvester rights. And those are in part meant to, to protect particular fishing communities um, like Pribilof Islands. Um, but um, so the variety of ways that you might, you might um, achieve those social social and you know, or ecological goals by, by res putting restrictions on how quota is used or traded. Okay. Um, okay, so building on this conversation so far, I wanna transition to your work on, I mean, most broadly it's, it's related to this idea of, it, it's still sticking with this idea of complementary or additional policies or types of institutions that are meant to address what are traditionally seen as uh, potential weaknesses of catch shares. And so that's in a way, that's what we're already talking about. Mm -hmm. And a branch of your work has looked at a specific way to do this, which is through, which now starts to engage with a lot of the work that I do and know, which is on collective ownership and community-based resource management. One thing that's interesting, Dan, is there's, there's a paper written by Jim Atchison and Jim, James Wilson a while ago called like the case for parametric resource management. And they make this argument that community-based fishers, fishing systems often use more input controls than more bureaucratic centralized systems would tend to use more output controls, which I think is an interesting piece to this because input controls are, have also been a class of kind of complementary techniques to make catch shares more in line with the principles of ecosystem-based management, holistic ecosystem-based management. So could you talk to me about your work on the implementation of community-based management within the context of catch shares? What were the problems that you saw motivating this and how has the implementation of community management help address the problems that it was designed to solve? Um, okay, well, let, 
I'm, let me try and, and answer a slightly different question. Instead of community-based management, let me say collective management. Okay. Um, um, because I think there are fewer examples of what I would call community-based management, unless you think of community as sort of a, the community of, of, you know, people that work together or something on the sea, right? Communities Got it. Of, 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 yeah. But um, I think that if you look around the world at where ITQs have been put in place, um, or catch air systems have been put in place. Almost in almost all cases, there is some type of a collective um, organization um, that is, uh, um, you know, formed essentially by the industry, um, or by the by the quota holders um, to deal with a, a variety of different issues, including kind of ecological issues like bycatch and and. Um, you know, other issues like market failures in terms of tradability that, that I talked about in terms of the, the, um, the bycatch issues or the, the um, uh, um, st stocks that are inhibiting catch of other, uh, other stocks. Um, and so what you, what you see is that in a variety of forms. So, you know, in Iceland, maybe you see it because you have large companies that own multiple vessels. Um, and so they sort of are essentially a large collective um, themselves, essentially a corporation, right? But um, in um, New Zealand, um, what you see is that uh, not in all fisheries, but in most fisheries there, you have the ITQs and then you have a, an actual sort of um, structure set up for those quota holders to form collectives um, that can do a variety of things, um, including reduce the TAC from what it would otherwise be um, for, you know, and deal with other things. And, they, and, and the rules are such that they can, if they have a majority of quota holders agree to this, um, they can they can then enforce the rest of the quota holders to go along with this. And so, um, you know, a classic example is the scallop fishery there where they were you know, doing spatial management, rotating areas, and uh, you know, um, and so they were imposing that on themselves. There are also cases there where they've reduced the quota for market reasons or because they were, um, well, it's complex for the various reasons why they why they may have reduced it from what it would have otherwise been, but they're but they they've done so. So, uh, and then you have cases where. Uh, like on the West Coast here, where you have these risk pools that were formed, which were basically to deal with these choke stocks and the, and the market failures associated with trading these these quotas. So you have these individuals join the join the uh, risk pool that doesn't really put a lot of constraints on how they use most of their quota, but um, maybe set some rules about staying out of areas where they're likely to encounter bycatch of these these constraining species. Um, and then provides them access to a pool of quota for those. So, uh, and then yeah, then Dan, sorry, could you? So, can we? I know you've written about risk pools specifically. Can we? Can we unpack that a little bit further? What is sure. a risk pool? Um, okay, so a risk pool is um, you know essentially essentially uh, a form of insurance, I guess. Okay. Um, so. Um, I think it's best explained in the context of the particular example here, um, where you have uh, a, uh, a particular species or a few different species that, um, you know, have very low quotas and have the potential to constrain, but your, your likelihood of catching those is highly uncertain. So you, those most are the people choke species. Never, 
those are the choke species. So most okay. people will maybe never run into these, but if you do happen to run into some, you might catch a whole bunch. Um, and the rules are such that at that point, unless you could come up with the quota to cover that catch, you would be tied up for the rest of the season and maybe even into the next year. So it's very costly for you, but you, you don't know. So you basically then join an insurance pool um, where you and a bunch of other people pool your quota of that, of that particular species. And you say, you know, whoever um, happens to run into this, they can draw from that pool of quota. So like all insurance products that you have issues with that, you know, you have to control moral hazard and, um, you know, to keep people from, you know, you want people to actually try and try and avoid the bycatch. Right. But once they're insured against it, they're more likely to do it. Yeah. If they're insured, they're more likely to do it. So that some of the risk pool then will have a set of rules. They'll say, you know, we're going to say you need to fish, not fish in certain areas, or maybe we're going to, we're going to keep track of where, where people are catching this and, and, and have rolling, you know, have kind of in-season closures. Um, there may be, you know, a variety of other rules that they can come up with and they can change flexibly. I think that's sort of the beauty of, of these collective arrangements um, is that they, the, the industry has the information to, to design them in a way that's effective and they can change them quickly when they need to. Whereas regulators, when they try and design these rules, they don't have enough information to design them effectively and they can't change them quickly. Okay. And I, Dan, I appreciate you um, kind of pushing back on my kind of projection of this being a community-based system. That's kind of, you're seeing where I'm coming from. And so I have a kind of representative, represented, what's the word, representativeness bias, where if I, th if I hear the word collective, I impose this idea of kind of a communitarian situation on that. And, and so we're not necessarily talking about as you said, like an organic community of folks who like live in the same town or anything like that. It's, it is a collective, but as you said, that's only a community in a sense if you actually think that people who end up having a common interest in a set of quota are a community, which certainly might not be the case. But so is it correct to think that this idea of collective, and I'm sorry if I'm sure I'm not using the keywords in the kind of exact right ways here, the, this collective arrangement, that actually then includes a lot of different, that's a big bucket, it seems to me. It includes things like vertically integrated companies. Does it? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's starting to, to stretch it a little bit. But it, but, okay. it, but if you think about it, um, yeah, I mean, effectively, um, you know, the, that, that, that vertically integrated, I guess it's, it's sort of more not, maybe the vertical integration is, is less important in a sense than the horizontal in integration, right? That you have a company that owns a bunch of different boats, right? I see. And so, yeah, because when I first thought about like collective quota, what I met, the scenario I imagined, Dan, and some of the question is how realistic, realistic is this scenario ever is, Kind of an amount of quota being collectively granted to like 20 fishers at a time is that a correct way to think about this yeah i mean that's one way it's done i mean so that is the way for example um it was done for the pollock uh fisheries and for some some of these alaskan alaskan fisheries where you have quotas actually allocated to uh, a a group and that's the way the sectors are done in new england right so the group is allocated the quota um based typically on the catch history uh, of the individuals that are part of that collective. Right, um, each sector, okay. Period of, sort of period of time. And so that, that's used there, it's used um, for the sort of the mothership and the out, uh, 
and um, the, the at sea sectors basically for the whiting fishery on the west coast. Um, so th that's one form where the, the, the right is actually, or the quota is allocated to a group. Um, other cases, you know, the quota is allocated to individuals, but then they form, contractually form uh, a collective on top of that. Um, okay, from the bottom up then, they're doing that on their own. Right, Okay. Sort of organic. Okay, so Dan, in the paper, to get really concrete here, in the paper that you wrote about this that I saw, I think it was published in 2018, you talk about how these are addressing both problems within the fishery and between the fishery, like intra versus inter pro, um, fishery problems. Can you, can we just get explicit here about what are the challenges within the fishery that are being addressed here, but then you really focused on what are the challenges that are being addressed by this collective arrangement between the fishery and its environment like why is that distinction important and how does that play out well um i think the distinction you know is important um although there's sort of overlap in these things so bycatch is a good e example i think um but bycatch or kind of the market failures within these multi-species fisheries that we've talked about and then you know where you implement a risk pool or something, uh, some kind of collective to sort of deal with that, um, to, to help get the quota to, to, to who needs it and deal with the uncertainty. That's sort of the in, intra-fishery issue there. Um, that's a, a common one. Um, and, um, you know, or it may even be, you know, you know, just simply allowing tradability, um, you know, is, is an intra-fishery issue there to, you know, allowing, allowing quota to, to, to move to, to those who value more. Um, and um, which, you know, maybe would it be more restricted um, in, in an individual system or something. Um, the inter-fishery thing um, or sort of inter-stakeholder group is where you have an externality um, that the actions of this fishery are are sort of impeding or you know are, are creating harm basically to um, other groups um, you know whether it be uh, another uh, another fishery for example so the halibut fishery you know is being impacted by a trawl fishery the trawl fishery is not actually allowed to land that halibut um, but any catch that they catch and kill um, is sort of taking away from that other fishery. Um, and, um, you know, or, um, or maybe they're doing habitat damage, um, as well. And, you know, that habitat damage, you know, they may be, they might take that into consideration to some degree, um, if they think it's going to, to affect the sustainability of their own fishery, the quota holders in a particular fishery, right? They know if we completely, you know, denude the bottom that, uh, eventually we're not going to have a fishery anymore. Um, on the other hand, um, that might not be the case. It may be that that denuding the bottom um, is actually makes it really good for flatfish and um, so or scallops or whatever it is, and so they don't really have an incentive to take care of the habitat. Um, but so instead, then the regulator would is going to impose some regulations on them. So the collective may be able to say, well, look, let us deal with this problem instead. We can we can deal with it in a more effective and efficient way than you would deal with it. Um, as as a regulator because we have more information than you and more flexibility to do this and so you know the, the example there is up in british columbia where um they have this trawl fishery up there it's an itq fishery they have um 
you know, a sort of collective organization that came up with this um, this approach, um, actually, which it, in the end ended up being sort of um, formalized uh, in in a sort of a habitat quota um, type um, thing. So you, they have now quotas for for habitat impacts, essentially for sponge and coral. Um, uh, but that collective then, in order to actually sort of reduce the impacts of that, they also impose upon themselves closed areas, not allowing themselves to fish in certain areas that had not you know, fish in the past, et cetera. So um, they're basically dealing with that in order to forestall some heavy-handed um, regulation that would otherwise come down. Um, New Zealand, I, you know, you see similar examples where the industry imposed uh, you know, upon themselves large closed areas of areas that had not been fished, said we're not going to fish in these areas that have not been fished before. Um, and then maybe the reason for doing that is because they knew if they didn't do that, that then they were going to get imposed on them anyway, and they'd have less say in, say in it. Okay. I mean, so really, it's kind of the final set of questions I have, Dan, are about the relationships between different kind of policy instruments or, or policy approaches. I mean, you so you've studied reserves, you've studied catch shares, you've studied this these collective um, arrangements that are in part designed to deal with the predictable weaknesses that an output-based system like catch shares might have. That's also focusing on the efficiency and profitability. Part of where I'm coming from is a strong sensitivity to um, kind of panacea thinking of always wanting there to be one best solution. And it seems to me like often what we see when we actually go to the world are hybrid arrangements where it's not one thing, it's multiple things and it's how they work together. And, you know, one, one question I have in my mind is, you know, we call, we might say that, okay, this, this, is an, this system is an ITQ. We define it in our heads as that way, but not all ITQs are the same. Not all catchers are the same. Some of them have complementary controls and a lot of collective action from the bottom to deal with these weaknesses. Some of them don't. And so, you know, if we have a situation where there is a catch share, but there are also extensive input controls, um, spatial closures, you know, to me that really changes what feels like the identity of that system. Do I call it a catch share with complementary input and spatial controls, or do I call it an input-based system with complementary catch share controls, right? It, and that seems to matter because that's how we, when we give credit for a policy working well or not, we it sometimes feels like that discourse only pays attention to like the biggest category that belongs there. And maybe that's not fair. Maybe that's like not actually happens. It doesn't happen as much as I think it does. So I guess to turn this into one of the last questions I'd like to ask you, what are your conclusions about, what are your conclusions about the impacts this kind of hybrid reality has for how we think about which policies are better or worse? Or is that a discourse that you don't think is helpful in the first place? How do you think about that? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's unhelpful, but you know, I think um, I think you're right that we generally generally see hybrid arrangements. Um, very, you know, rarely do you see, you know, just a just a, an output control um, 
you know, there be an individual or or uh, in aggregate output control as a way to manage a fishery. Um, and um, if you have other other goals um, and other concerns, um, whether it be ecological or social, um, then you are likely to see these, you know, these additional um, input controls um, or, you know, or other sort of variations on output controls, spatial controls, whatever. Um, uh, put in place to deal with these. Um, I think that um, there's generally a good, you know, there are generally good reasons to use um, area closures. What, you know, they may be year-round closures, they may be um, in-season moving closures, depending on what their objectives are. You may have both. Uh, they might be imposed by regulators or they might be um, imposed um, by a collective. Um, I think the, the big difference between sort of a cat share and collective approach versus in sort of an ITQ, pure ITQ system with a hybrid where, where you have regulators then imposing these things is that um, the collective has, tends to have sort of better information and more flexibility um, and better control over, over implementing these things. Um, uh, and you mentioned you see in, in these community-based systems, you often see these input controls and uh, more input controls. And, and, you know, in part that's because that collective can design those input controls in a way that achieve what they need to achieve without totally impeding the efficiency of the fishery. Um, and so, you know, that I see as the, as the primary sort of um, benefit of, of a, uh, catch share type system, particularly with a collective, you know, either done in a collective um, from, from the get-go or with a collective kind of added on over the top, layered onto it, is that it can achieve these other objectives uh, more efficiently and effectively than um, regulators can. Okay. What are your next steps, Dan? And I want to ask this at two levels. What for you in your own research are the questions you still have that you want to answer about catchers or reserves, or maybe there's a whole new research program that you're hoping to address. That's kind of my question for you. Yeah. And, and then yeah. more broadly, how do you see the fisheries governance space moving forward? What are the challenges you think that we need to collectively meet? And what are your hopes or trepidations about meeting them? So those are the, my final two questions. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I mean, cat shares and community, you know, collective action, whatever are, you know, has only ever been kind of one part of my research program. I, I generally like to have, you know, had some different different uh, subjects that I that I'm interested in, sometimes overlapping, um, sometimes not. And and you know, at this point in time right now, I'm not really doing a whole lot that directly relates to to um, catch shares or quotas or um, you know, collective action. I'm continuing to do a little bit sort of work on kind of monitoring what's going on with that quota market and, and such, but I'm not really it's not it's not a major focus for me. Um, a lot of my work now is focused more on, um, in terms of the marine fisheries work at least, is focused more on understanding how the management regimes affect kind of the resilience of uh, individuals uh, and communities. That I kind of got into this in part because um, 
of the criticisms of cat chairs and ITQs, um, you know, for the first, particularly for social uh, reasons. Um, but every time you, you know, you try and have an ITQ in, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people are very against it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's not always completely transparent, but, um, you know, I'm interested in kind of understanding and trying to quantify um, some of the benefits that aren't monetized from fisheries participation. Um, and so that we can actually compare them on a sort of apples to apples basis, just, you know, as much as possible to economic benefits. Um, and so um, we started a survey back in 2017 um, that, and we've done it, we did it again in 2020, hope to get, do it again in 2023, where um, we send a mail survey out to basically all vessel owners on the West Coast, all co commercial vessel owners on the West Coast. So about 2,800 um, wow. surveys go out. Um, we got about 14, over 1,400 responses both times. Um, so 50, more than 50% response rate. Um, and we ask a whole variety of questions, like maybe I pointed you to the website, but that one MBO paper kind of gets at some of that, some of the results from that survey. But, um, you know, we're trying to do things like measure social capital and, and, um, and um, job satisfaction, but also look at, at sort of willingness to, you know, the willingness to accept lower, lower wages in order to be a fisherman, you know, what would you have, how much more would you have to get paid to be, do something else? Um, anyway, we're trying, you know, trying to get uh, a handle on some of these other things that, that drive people to want to participate in fisheries other than just the, the, the you know, the profits that they they generate. Um, so that's, that's a kind of a, a focus. Um, I also got a kind of a focus that's uh, on diversification, understanding how fisheries management affects the ability of fishers to diversify what they do um, in terms of fishing uh, and how that affects their resilience and, and you know, income variation risk. Um, and we've sort of been able to, to broaden that to look at, at non-fishery income diversification. So with that survey, that same survey, we were able to look at, at income that, that fishers generate from um, labor for other jobs or you know or household income that's coming from the spouse or whatever to to better understand how um you know how people sort of piece together a living uh that may involve fishing as well as other things and dan does that work then relate to the idea of resilience the idea that if you have a more diverse livelihood stream that makes you more resilient or is that a connection i'm kind of inventing here yeah no i think that's that's the idea i mean presumably that we, I, I think our assumption was that that's why people are doing that. I'm not sure if that is really the case um, always. Um, I don't know if the motivation for, for being diversified, you know, whether it be a diversified in multiple fisheries or diversified um, in fishing and non-fishing is really um, about trying to reduce risk and re increase resilience. Um, I think in a lot of cases, it's just trying to increase um, your total scale of your operation and 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 revenues and you do that by adding another fishery permit um, or you do that you know or if you're constrained and it's too expensive to 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 buy another fishing permit then maybe i'm going to work in construction part mm -hmm. of the year and fish part of the year. so um so it's you know i i, I don't believe necessarily that that you know, most of the people are sitting there and thinking about, well, let's see, you know, how am I going to reduce the variance of my future income stream by diversifying? They're they're just thinking about it more as like, how do I make a living? Yeah, and as a part of that work, Dan, 
um, looking at the drivers of changes in diversification as well, including let's say like a catch share program. Is that one of the underlying yeah. drivers of that? Yeah, yeah. So we've okay. done some work looking at that, looking at how limited access regimes, which preceded uh, catch shares, you know, where you you're limiting the number of licenses um, that that you know people have, and then also catch shares. We did some work looking at how catch share systems across the U.S. affected diversification levels, both of people that stayed in the fishery and people that left the fishery after the catch share came in, and then also how that affected their the variation in income over time after that. And what's like a high-level finding from that? High-level finding was that um, we generally did see some reductions in diversification, um, but, um, you know, particularly for people that left the fishery, um, but we don't necessarily see reduction in, in an increase in variability in income, um, despite that that um, that increase in that reduction in diversification. We've got some new work that's coming out with a, a co-author of mine, Josh Abbott, led, where we sort of expanded this notion of diversification to think about temporal diversification. So, if you look at um, you know, at you measure diversification just basically in how you spread your income fishing income out over the year as opposed to across fisheries. Uh, and it may be that you're doing that by fishing in multiple fisheries or maybe you're fishing in one fishery all year long, right? Um, it turns out that that is a better predictor of income variation than species diversification, right? And so in a catch share system, often you end up creating a possibility of you know fishing, fishing longer um, more of the year, particularly if you had a fishery that had been a bit of a derby or something like that. Um, or, oh, I see. Or, and and so you may you may have you have and, and, and you also create more certainty about how much cash you can have every year because you have you know you're not racing against other people for it right so so the cash share systems I think have other aspects of them that tend to to reduce income variation that may have offset um, you know the effects of, of lower diversification species diversification okay so how are you feeling moving forward about about fisheries about whether or not we can keep them running and and keep deriving livelihoods off them and all that. Um, well, I think it depends, you know, where you where you are. I think in the U.S., I think, you know, we're managing fisheries pretty well um, from a biological standpoint, and for the most part, from an economic standpoint. Um, I think that that there are are challenges that are that are coming now. Um, Kind of more on the market side, um, that you know you're competing with aquaculture now, which is um, is able to continue to expand and 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 become more efficient, um, and uh, that you know maybe sort of constraining markets uh, to to some degree, particularly for sort of a lower value species but so we have you know on the west coast here we have a huge oversold quota that's not you know they catch maybe 15 20 percent of it you know it's a certainly a, you know valuable species good eating um but limited limited markets um and so you know i think that that appears to at least on the west coast is 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 really sort of the challenge and one of the big challenges of the day is is to actually utilize some of these underutilized species. So it's it's um, really, you know, changed from what it was 20 years ago when we were really concerned about trying to rebuild overfish fisheries. And, um, not to say that we don't 
you know, we won't continue to have situations. We have some, some rockfish stocks that were just found to be depleted um, and that we probably, you know, very likely will need to rebuild. Um, probably, you know, those had, had more to do with, with sort of nature than overfishing, but nevertheless, they need to be rebuilt. Um, so those, those problems haven't gone away. But um, I think, you know, in, in other parts of the world, uh, uh, particularly developing countries um, where you don't have, um, you know, as much ability to, con you know, to, to manage fisheries directly, there, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of overfishing problems going on. Um, and, um, you know, I think you are starting to see improvements there, particularly in kind of um, semi-developed countries, but um, even in de even developing countries with the use of kind of turf type processes, you know, turf mechanisms and things. Yeah, I've heard about the turf system in Chile, Territor yeah. territorial user rights fisheries, I think, <laughs> which seems to overlap a bit with the idea of a catcher, but it's also a bit of its own thing. It's kind of where I, yeah, where my understanding yeah. sits on that. Yeah, yeah. Some people would argue it's just another form of cashiers, but you may not actually be. It sort of depends whether you're constraining what they, the total amount that they're able to catch. Okay. All right. Well, that was. This has been a whirlwind hour and a half. My brain yeah. is full of of some new understandings and things I need to kind of sort out. Um, are there um, topics that we haven't addressed, Dan, that you want to before we wrap up, or are there threads on certain topics that we started that you want to return to? Uh, one question that we didn't quite cover, we sort of, we, at the beginning, you talked about, you know, the impetus for, for cash shares. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about sort of the theoretical impetus for them. But, you know, the, in practice, I think, you know, cash shares usually come in place and, you know, in response to some kind of crisis, um, generally an economic crisis. And that kind of t plays out in basically two ways. One, you either have fisheries that were you know originally open access you had a lot of participation in them that grew uh and you then limited in order to kind of limit limit the ensure sustainability you put on total allowable catch so there's the halibut uh, case in alaska as an example and then you had this derby and race for fish um that reduced the value of the fishery and maybe created uh, because all the catch is frozen, for example, and, and you know, or maybe created some safety issues and ghost fishing issues and all these other things. So you got to a point where it just became kind of untenable, um, and um, and um, you you impose these catch shares to try and recover some of the efficiency in the fishery. So the other way it tends to play out was um, you had a fishery like New England um, where you didn't. In, in implement a total allowable catch. Instead, use an input con control approach and limited licenses. And they they put on input controls. They limited who could fish. They started limiting the number of days they could fish. Then they started having tradable days that were different different use rates depending on where you fish. So you know if you used fished in this area, you were using two days or three days per each day that you used. More and more complicated. You know, intertwined with closed areas and and they still weren't achieving the biological objectives. And they got to a point where they were going to have just have to have sort of ridiculous um, rules in place um, that would have said, you know, you're going to use 50 days to fish here. And so at that point, you know, it's when the sector sectors thing was was brought in. Um, nobody, nobody necessarily liked it, but it was sort of the lesser of evils. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. Thank you.